Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who at age 17 was drafted by the New York Mets out of Bramberg Earhart High School in the first round of the 1992 Major League Baseball Draft. The Baseball American 1992 High School Player of the Year. He was ranked among the top 100 prospects in baseball by magazine four times between 1993 and 1998. He reached the majors in May 1998, but just two weeks after joining the Mets, he was traded to the Florida Marlins with two other minor leaguers from Mike Piazza. Uh, he would go on to have a 10-year Major League career playing for the New York Mets, Florida Marlins, Colorado Rockies, Washington Nationals, Houston Astros, and St. Louis Cardinals. It is a thrill to welcome the 2003 All-Star, the National League RBI leader, as well as the 2006 World Series champion, Preston Wilson, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Preston. How you doing? Oh, great, man. After that intro like that, I'm doing really well. Thank you. <laughs> it's all you, man. So, you know, we mentioned your time at Bramberg Earhart High School in the Open. It's the same high school your stepdad, Mookie Wilson, went to. And not only that, you played for the same exact high school coach, David Horton, who, who coached Mookie as well. So what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of, of you know, that intimacy, that knowledge of you from an early age, obviously, um, and the fact that he coached your stepdad. Well, I, I don't see, really see any disadvantages. I mean, I was fortunate to have a great coach who, even though it was a really small town, uh, he knew a lot about baseball. He had actually uh, played in the minor leagues for the Yankees for a little bit. Um, so he's a great baseball guy. He taught us great fundamentals. And I tell you, man, he's one of the best coaches in the history of, of high school baseball. Uh, he had set the, uh, the record for wins in high school for baseball in the state. I think there's a college coach who may have more overall wins in baseball, but as far as state, uh, he's got the most wins in the state. I think he's got 13, uh, state titles he won. Uh, I mean, from my uncles, my dad, every, all, all the way through, he's my pretty much whole family played baseball under him. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So while you're there, you set a, a national prep school record by hitting seven grand slams. You also had a 13-0 and record pitching with a sub-2 ERA. Um, while that was only 30 years ago, it's obviously long before Twitter and cell phone videos. Uh, it's still enough to make you uh, the second highest high school student taken in that draft behind Derek Jeter. Have you ever wondered, you know, if you were in high school now, with, with the way we know, you know we publicize every single thing that, that goes on, you know what your career might have been, and maybe the additional pressure put on you at that point. You know what I, I have thought about it, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it happened when it did. You know, I, I look at uh, a lot of other players that came up, and you know, some guys live up to the hype, some don't. But it's really not that player's fault. You know, it, it really is a point of the media. Uh, and, and all the outside sources projecting what a kid is going to be. 
You know, I mean, and it's, you know, I look at some of the, uh, the great, great players from all sports who you see all the hype about them when they're in high school. And yeah, they were great at that level, but when they get to the next level, they don't play that well. And it's not that player's fault. It's, it's the projections that everyone else put on them. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with the way it happened. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for the players that, that came after me in every sport because man, that's, that's a lot to have someone else tell you what you're going to do and how you're going to do. And then you have, it's up to you to live up to it. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah, It's interesting because I'm unfortunately old enough to, you know, remember when Mookie first came up, but I remember when you were drafted and I remember Jerry Hussinger saying this and he said that the fact that you knew the game so well came because he felt that you were around Mookie, but also he went out of his way to really mention the, the impact that George, being around George Foster had on you. What was that impact, and what were some of the things you learned from George Foster watching him when you were a young kid? Well, I mean, he was, he was a, a right-handed power hitter like I was. I mean, even though, you know, I was really close with my dad, when, when you watch someone who – you know, who has a similar skill set that you have, it's easier to kind of adapt some of the things that they do. And I spent a lot of time in the cage working with George. Um, he definitely helped me uh, with the offensive part of my game. Uh, so when you when you have someone you can kind of model yourself after in a certain way, um, it, it really helps. Uh, I guess with the mentality uh, that you're trying to take to the plate to get your job done. So you make your way up the Mets minor league system, and was there a particular manager or coach or player who was instrumental in your development at that time? There were a lot, man. Uh, I mean, I, uh, Ron Washington was one of my eight ball managers um, who, uh, you know, he, he, he just really, you know, he was all about perseverance, man. Go get it. Don't don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. You know, you might have a bad day today or bad, bad week, whatever. But keep coming. Keep bringing it every day. That was one of the great things about Washington. I think that's why you hear in the major leagues why all the players love him so much because, you know, the, he will never let you get down on yourself. And, you know, I, my, the year that I played for him, I started off slow. I still ended up hitting 20 home runs and stealing 20 bases that season in the minor league season, which is, you know, pretty solid. But, you know, striking out a lot. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on. Um, I ended up switching positions from uh, from third base to outfield. Um, I think the year after I played for him, but it was just one of those things, man. Where you know it was it was tough. You know, I was playing in, in a ballpark that was hard to see. The infield was bad. I was getting beat up on the infield. I made a lot of errors, uh, but just having him have that 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 attitude every day, man. He he made it easier to come in every day. Um, a guy that a lot of people probably have never heard of, Rich Miller, who's an outfield guy. Um, was one of the best outfield instructors, ended up moving away from the Mets. I think when ownership changed, they kind of pushed him out. Um, but man, what, what a guy just, just being able to work under him and have him be so consistent with the work and make sure that you did your work. And yes, yeah, sometimes it was annoying because you'd be out there on the field and it was hot. And then you, like, he would walk around all the fields. And I don't know if you, you know, when you go to like a minor league facility, they call it a clover where there are four baseball fields that are back to back. So basically, if you sit behind home plate, you could walk in a small circle and kind of go to each field and see every field where well, he would do the opposite. He would go around the outfield fences and walk around the back and just kind of spy on all those outfielders doing batting practice to make sure they were working, make sure they're getting ground balls, make sure they weren't being lazy out there. And the last thing you ever wanted to hear 
was all right. We got a bucket after after practice because that means he was watching you and you didn't do anything or you were being lazy out there and he, he basically hit you a whole bucket by yourself and you got to do all that work. But just guys like that who were, who were out there who really loved the game, who loved the players and cared enough to make sure they got the right work done. Um, I mean, it was a bunch of guys, but those two guys really stand out to me. So May of 1998, utility man Craig Paquette sprains his ankle. Uh, Bernard Gilkey was on the DL at the time. The Mets had two outfielders on the 40-man roster down at Norfolk, you and Jay Payton. Jay had just started throwing again after his second reconstructive elbow surgery. How did you find out that you were being called up to the majors, and what was your reaction? I, I got called uh, in my hotel room. Um and it was just like, hey, um, you okay? I was like, yeah. He's like, all right, well, you know, you, you go into New York. They need somebody to go into New York. And that was it. And I was just, was just stunned in the silence. And the next thing I knew, I was getting information about what flight or whatever I was going to be on. But it, was, it, came, as a, it came as a shock um, because the, it was, the odd thing that happened was uh, Edgardo Alfonso actually hurt his back. So Paquette was hurt, but then Alfonso hurt his back. So, you know, Nobody's thinking an outfielder is going to be needed, but somehow they needed an outfielder. So I ended up being uh, the guy that went up. Yeah. So it was a, uh, it was a shock, man. And then walking into Shea Stadium was, was pretty wild after, uh, growing up in that ballpark, basically watching my, my dad play there for, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 years, however long he was there, uh, 10 years watching him play there. And then, uh, you know, my first job was, was as a, in the Mets, like as a promotions kid, hanging and handing out the, 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 the yearbooks or the, or the pennants or the bats or whatever it is during the season where they have a giveaway day. I was one of the kids that would go get the stuff out of the lockers and bring it out. And then when all the fans came and they came through the turnstiles to hand it to whoever had, you know, whoever got one. Um, but then to go through all that experience and then come there as a player. And then walk through there and then get to go into the locker room and put on a uniform. That was a whole, that was a whole like surreal out of body experience. It really was. And not only for you, because as a Met fan, you know, that was at that game, actually, you, you take a look at that game, May 7th, 1990, and you have to smile because you look up the scoreboard and you see a Wilson leading off the game. You get it in, your first hit is an infield hit on top of it. Um, there to meet you at first base to, to, you know, give you a high five is your dad, Mookie, who was the first base coach at the time. You end up going three for four in RBI in that game in a four to one Mets win over the Cardinals. What's your fondest memory of just taking that all in and all the aspects that I just mentioned? Oh, man. The, 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 I think the first thing is walking out onto that field and then kind of like, realizing that I'm myself, but also being a like eight to 10 year old version of myself walking out of that dugout for like a father son game. You know, that's kind of because it's the same ballpark. Chase Stadium had not really changed. You know, they, they had updated the paint a little bit. The grass is all nice and clean and all that, but it's still walking out of that same dugout that I was walking out, holding my dad's hand, you know, going out to a father son game. And then now I'm the person that's actually playing. Um, and then also getting my first base hit, and then shaking my dad's hand at first base. I mean, those two things that are just moments that I hope I never forget. You get to play uh, more games as a Met at Shea, um, just one more. Then right. you go on the road, West Coast trip. And then after that trip, May 22nd, 1998, you traded by the Mets with a couple of minor leaguers, Ed Yarnell, to the Florida Marlins for Mike Piazza. You know, how did you find out about that trade and, and you know, Granted, you know, to be able to be traded for one of the star players in the league might cushion the blow a little bit. But here's, you know, you had your your heart 
set on being a Met, that same organization that you grew up with. You know, what's your initial reaction and how'd you find out about it and just the general feeling that day? My initial reaction was just shock um, because I was, uh, you know, I was one of the Mets top prospects, uh, top prospects at the time. Uh, it's not the top, I was one of their top prospects. And I just come off a season where uh, between A ball and double A, I hit 30 home runs and 95 RBIs or yeah. Cause I had 11 in the first half in, in a ball and 19 in the second half. Uh, so that was 30. And then, uh, between the two, between the two, uh, levels, I hit 90, I drove in 95 runs. So I was definitely one of the top, uh, you know, guys in the organization. And that was kind of untouchable. That was, you know, you have these few guys that are like, no matter what, we're not trading them. Well, uh, when my Piazza became available, I got touchable real quick. Um, <laughs> it, it happened in a hurry. And, you know, I, it was one of those things where it was like, the Mets were my family. I grew up watching the Mets. I, I didn't even know the Mets were going to draft me, but when they drafted me, you know, then again, I'm playing for the Mets. Um, you know, it was just one of those things where that was home for me. So now I have to figure out a whole other way to live with this whole other group of people. And, uh, you know, it, it took a lot to kind of settle in. But the weird thing about the whole circumstances in the minor leagues, our Mets AAA was actually playing against the Marlins AAA at the time. So Norfolk was actually in Charlotte. So I played the first game of that series for the Mets against Charlotte, the Met, the Marlins. And then I played the last two games of the series for the Marlins against the Mets. So I really just switched dugouts uh, that, that when that trade happened. You're the Joel Youngblood of your era, for sure. Unbelievable. <laughs> so, But it really doesn't take you long to establish yourself. In 1999, you're the Marlins' regular center fielder. You lead the team in home runs, runs batted in as a rookie. You finish second in the National League Rookie Year of the Year battling Cincinnati Reds reliever Scott Williamson. The following season, you joined the 30-30 club, 31 home runs, stealing 36 you know, bases. You added 121 RBIs, good for eighth in the National League. As a young player, how much can you ride that confidence of those results so early in your career to really set your, your footing for a, a – you know, a successful career in the majors. And conversely, you know, we see some players struggle that never gain, gain the confidence and have that mentality to be able to succeed. So how important were those two years? Well, those years were important. I think first I really had, I mean, you, you say it came quick to me. It felt like it took forever. <laughs> and I'll tell you why, because when I came up in, at the end of 98, I didn't really play much. Um, uh, the, the Marlins had their guys who were their prospects, who were their homegrown guys. Uh, the center fielder who I was playing had was a guy named Todd Dunwoody. So in 98, I didn't play much. And in 99, uh, when I started that season, I wasn't the starting center fielder. Uh, it took me until the, uh, I want to say March 20-something. I remember the game. Uh, we were on the road, and I ended up pitch hitting against Chanho Park, and I hit a, uh, a three-run home run opposite field. Pitching against Chandler Park. After that game was when I became the starting uh, center fielder for the Marlins. And that was until uh, March, like the end of March, uh, like middle of the end of March. So before that, I was just pinch hitting or playing against tough lefties that uh, they wouldn't let Todd Donovan really play against. So after I had, after I earned that spot, then it felt like, okay, things started going because now, uh, you know, I had to prove that I was better than the guy that they had there. Um, but it, you know, I think more than anything, uh, having a couple guys around like Cliff, uh, Cliff Floyd, who was, uh, you know, really gaining steam at that time, good player. Um, and Louis, Louis Castillo, uh, having his speed at the top of the lineup, getting on base, those guys really helped me out a lot as far as being able to do the things I did as far as driving in runs, um, you know, being able to drive in a lot of runs because, you know, I, 
there weren't that many times where uh, when I hit home runs that there were a lot of solo home runs. Lou was on, Cliff was on, Alex Gonzalez, I think, was hitting second for a while. Uh, so that kind of helped me put the numbers up. And I think more than anything, it helped me to learn through some situations. But it also taught me you can't do it by yourself. You have to have people around you uh, that are going to provide you the opportunities to get those numbers. So after the 2002 season, you're involved in a six-player deal, which sent you three other players to the Rockies for Juan Pierre and Mike Hampton. You set career highs, 282 batting average, 43 doubles, 36 home runs. You also lead the National League, 141 runs batted in. You're named uh, to your first all-star team. I heard you on the Major League Baseball radio uh, last week talking about that outfield of you, Larry Walker, and Jay Payton, and how much fun it was part to be part of that outfield and how good it was. As good as, you know, you take a look at, at Walker's offensive numbers. His D gets overlooked a bit. What was it about playing with those two that made it so enjoyable for you? Well, I, I think we were all we were all good outfielders. And it was the first time I felt like I played with with an outfielder, all good outfielders. And also uh just Larry Walker was just so so much fun to play with. Jay was fun to play with. Um, and But it was tough playing in that big outfield. I, I can't imagine playing in an outfield that big without three guys that are really good, you know, outfielders. I think Larry Walker could have been a center fielder. Jay Payton did play center field sometimes through his career. Um, but it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a situation where when you have guys who care too much about playing defense as they do about offense, uh, it makes it makes it a whole lot easier. You know, you don't you don't have those little squabbles out there. You don't have any frustrations with each other because you know everybody's giving their all. But uh, yeah, you're right. Larry Walker, his off his defense is one of the things that are really overlooked. Uh, he's so good about positioning and and knowing what each guy is going to do and paying attention to the swings on that particular day. Uh, and I think that's one of the things to guy one of the things uh, to guy today's players are missing. Is because they have so much information with these wristbands, and you know, that give them the plays and where to play with each player. I don't. I think they're given so much information; they're not forced to study it on their own. And I think that part of the game, where you when you see a player now looking at a wristband to see where he's supposed to stand, because of you know what a guy is going to do with a certain count or with a certain thing, certain situation. We had to do that on our own. We we took that upon ourselves to study the book, study the charts, to understand what guys did what. And uh, Larry was really good at that. So you traded to the Washington Nationals July of 2005 for pitcher Zach Day, outfielder J.J. Davis. You lead the teams in home runs, RBIs during the second half of the season, finishing with 25 and 90 respectively. It's another stop with yet another pretty high-profile uh, personality manager. Some of the others you've played for to that point, Bobby V, Jimmy Leland, Clint Hurdle, and now Frank Robinson. You go on as well to play for Tony La Russa. What was Frank like? And of all the high-profile guys that managed you, which is the manager that was the best fit for you? Uh, okay. I, I'm glad you asked for that because Frank Robinson was a great manager. And I understand me if he may have had his struggles at the beginning of his managing career, managing pitchers. Uh, but Frank was a great manager. And I, I honestly believe, and I will say this until I, until I leave this earth, Frank Robinson deserved better because the situation with him there with, with uh, Bowden was terrible. Bottom would have players go past Frank to go to him because they're unhappy about where they're hitting in the lineup. And then Bottom would force them, force uh, uh, Frank to change the lineup because some guy went upstairs and complained, whether it was Jose Guillen or somebody else was upset about where they're hitting in the lineup. He would actually force Frank to change the lineup and cut Frank's legs out from under him. That team had so much undiscipline. It was all Bowden's fault because you had guys like Esteban Loaiza, who I saw as a starting pitcher come to a game 45 minutes before the game started 
which is unheard. Like, you can't imagine how crazy it is to have your starting pitcher roll up to the game 45 minutes before the game started. But that, like, Bowden created that type of atmosphere. You could see it in his life, the way he lived. Like, all the things, scandals that he went on with the paper, the things with the Nationals, with him, you know, taking, uh, you know, cuts from team players and the Dominican, him and Jose Rios. Like, he created such a dysfunctional uh place that when I got there after two weeks of me going there, I knew that team wasn't going to win because there's no way you can have that much chaos in an organization with a guy who's running a team and then, and then have a manager that really has no power because the GM is cutting his legs out from under him with the players. So you had players who, like I said, may not really know the history of the game and know Frank Robinson, then they didn't respect him. And it was all because of Bowden who didn't respect him in the way that he went about his business. So to me, Frank deserved better. As far as the best fit, um, I think the Cardinals may have, may have been, the, been the best fit simply because from top to bottom it was run uh, well, and they were about baseball the way that I like baseball. It was about accountability. It's not about you know being great. It's about being standing up for doing your job, being there, and being accountable for when it's time to get it done. No, it's, that's shocking about Frank Robinson because he was such. I, I know his time with the Giants. He was such a disciplinarian. Time with the Indians, and you're right. I mean, it's situational, and, and that's why sometimes people look at managers and it's the situations they're put in that causes them to either be successful or unsuccessful. So that's a very interesting take on Frank Robinson. I appreciate that. Uh, that season, the Nationals would call up a 20-year-old third baseman uh, while you were there. He'd go on to play his entire 16-year career there. He just announced his retirement last week. What was your first impression when you saw Ryan Zimmerman when he was brought up? I mean, you, you knew the kid could play. You know, he had, he had this quiet confidence about him. And uh, I think when they, when they called him up that September, he hit like close to 400 or something like that. I mean, he was just, he was just quietly going about his job. Uh, you know, he wasn't afraid. You knew he thought he belonged there. And, uh, you know, he's one of those kids that I wish I could have seen play more. I saw him from the other side. But, yeah, you knew he was going to be a good one. You mentioned your time with the Cardinals. And, and we, you know, anyone that talks about baseball, they talk about the Cardinals way. And you get there and you get to your first postseason, uh, 13 postseason games. You appear in all five World Series games. You hear from athletes so many times in every sport that it's not so much the individual accomplishments. They're great but you play to win a championship. For someone who fought through lots of injuries, multiple teams, some good, some bad, what did that first taste of postseason and the eventual World Series win mean to you? Oh, uh, the first taste scared the death out of me at first. <laughs> you get there and you realize, like, you, now this is that moment of everything you want, and you realize how much different it is than anything you've ever been through. So that's kind of scary. Uh, but other than that, man, it was just, it was a time to just do your part, you know, do, do whatever I could to help the cause. And, uh, you know, I was, I was honestly, I, I was past my prime at that point. You know, my legs were, were bad. My knees were killing me. I'd already had, I think like knee, three knee surgeries at the time. Um, but, but when you get in that environment, I realized that the Cardinals weren't asking for more than I was able to give. And I think that's one of the great things of that era that the Cardinals did is when they went out and got a player, they didn't get a player hoping that he was somebody else. They got the player that was the closest thing to what they needed. And they needed another right-handed power batter slugger to be around Albert because they had Edmonds. Roland's shoulder was bad, um, but they needed, they needed another right-handed power bat. So whenever Roland was out or, you know, whatever the situation was, that another right-handed bat where once you got past Albert, you couldn't just load up the lineup with lefties and they get through because I always hit left-handed pitching well. Mm -hmm. So 
So I was what they needed, and, and I played good defense. I was still able, I was still running well enough to play good defense because they put me on the corners. I really had to play center field, um, and it worked out well. Um, and it, it was really one of those situations where I was I wasn't supposed to play as much as I did in the uh, in the World Series, but I think there was a play in the first game. A ball went down the right field line, and it ended up being a triple. And I think Tony thought it should have only been a double. Uh, Encarnacion, Juan Encarnacion, who's a really good friend of mine. I uh, knew him for a long time. I haven't talked to him in years, but he went down in the corner and uh, didn't really go at it as aggress- aggressively as uh, I guess Tony thought he should have. And I ended up starting and playing the rest of the World Series. Um, it's just one of those things where you realize your work kind of shows up. And, you know, I feel like I took pride in my defense my whole career, and that showed up in that situation. And one other thing that I nobody in the world probably would have ever guessed, and I know I didn't, uh, I actually got a sack bunt down in the World Series, uh, but it was only done because Tony knew I could do it. I always took pride in it, and even though I was a power hitter, did clean up most of my career. Doing batting practice or even in the minor leagues, I did get my bunts done. I would go out early for early work, get bunts done, so it was something that I did well, but it was something that I wasn't really asked to do that much, um, especially later in my career, but they knew that I could do it and I ended up getting a sack button down and that run actually ended up scoring uh, in the World Series. So it's one of those things where yes it's scary but it also is a, a thing where anything that you can do you're going to be able to have a chance to do it in the World Series or in the playoffs. At some point it's going to come off that whether that skill you've had that you should have been polishing is going to show up and you're going to have to prove it at some point. Uh, just to clarify for you 20-something year olds that are listening out there, a sack bunt is when the batter <laughs> gives himself up and a runner from first base gets to second base because of that sacrifice. Uh, so, uh, yo, yeah, it's unbelievable. It really is. Yes, wait till we tell you about the phone booths back then, Jets. No. <laughs> uh, a couple of more things before we let you go here. So, you finished your pro career right here on Long Island with the Ducks under a teammate of your dad's, Gary Carter, who was the manager yeah. of the Ducks at the time. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is there was so much talk this week on social media. Uh, one minor leaguer actually posted his W 2 form and, and showed how little money he made in the minors. Um, <clears throat> You know, and I'm kind of torn on this because you take a look at some other professions. Doctors spend tons of money on med school. Some eventually don't even become doctors. They wash out because they just couldn't do it. Cops and firemen, you know, have apprenticeships, uh, different trades, plumbers, electricians serve an apprenticeship where they're not really making a lot of money. You know, teachers take out student loans to, to get their degrees to become teachers and don't really see that, you know, down the road. But you know, I, I know at that point money probably wasn't an issue, but why did you decide to play for relatively no money in an independent league at that time in your career? I just, I wanted to play. You know, I wanted to play. And, and I will say this, uh, I, I I feel like the comparisons like between lawyers and doctors and apprentices and stuff, there is always going to be an opportunity for you to have a job when it comes to a lawyer or a policeman. Like the job is there waiting. It's up to you whether whether you're good at it or not. That's a difference. But the job is there waiting. In baseball, there may not be a job there waiting. Like just because you go through the minor league doesn't mean you're going to be a major league baseball player. You know, with you know, I mean, with your apprentice, like the job, it may not be where you want it to be, but there's going to be a job somewhere. In the minor leagues, you're not guaranteed a job. And I think that's the difference between those scenarios when you talk about other jobs as opposed to sports. I mean, there's some players who've been career minor leaguers. And, they, you know, until their fifth or sixth year, they're finally making enough money. 
But for me, I wanted to play. I wanted to see if I could, uh, you know, play well enough to maybe, you know, be an add-on guy for some team down the run. Now, that didn't end up happening for me, but that was why I played. I played because I love playing and I wanted to play. No, I, I totally agree with you that they do have some, but, but also, and again, one of the points you made on the Major League Baseball Network and something we talk about here a lot where, you know, on social media where people will trash a player and say, this player sucks, that player sucks. You know, we understand they are the best of the best if they're in the major leagues. And, you know, you stand, listen, I, I can talk from experience where, you know, I got in, you know, to bat against Ricky Bonus. And uh, my good friend Lenny Harris tell, told him after he threw me two fastballs and like the second one I fouled off. So I'm feeling all my, my chest is pumped out. And Lenny says, yo, throw him a Christmas present. And then all of a sudden this ball is headed right to my head. I bail. The thing drops off the table right into the catcher's mitt, strike three. And Lenny's just cracking up at third base. But yeah, I mean, people just don't get it. They don't get it. And, and that's one of the things we hate you know, when people do that. Um, yeah, yeah, you're laughing as hard as Lenny. You're laughing as hard as Lenny did. <laughs> because, because Lenny and I are good friends. I call him Coop. Like, that's just one of the things like, all the whole time baseball thing. Uh, Lenny is hilarious. Yeah, so that's one of the things people don't understand. People don't understand how hard it is to get a baseball. Um, and I'll give, you, I'll give you this analogy. You can see, you will see and have seen guys go from baseball to play other sports. I see. I had a friend named Bernard Morency. He played baseball in the minor leagues of the Rockies. He ended up going to Oklahoma State to play a running back. He played running back in the NFL for three. I think it was Green, Green Bay for a couple of years. They were you were the Vikings. He made it to the NFL as a running back after being a minor league baseball player. You don't see baseball players come from other sports to be a baseball player. That's true. Absolutely. It does not happen. Absolutely. So lastly, you were you were great on the – we're not going to talk lockout because that's just going to get us all upset. Um, you were so good on the air. Any shot of you coming back somewhere? Because uh, I envision a, a great show, even if it might even be on this network. I think you and your dad should do a show called Good Old Mr. Wilson's. And <laughs> I think it would be awesome to have both of you. I, I think there's a show there. You know what? Um, that would be cool to have a radio show. And actually, I, I was thinking about trying to get back in this year. Um, I've been talking to the, you know, to to the Marlins here, and I don't know what they're going to do with their with their uh, broadcast staff yet. Um, hopefully, I've, I saw something about Tommy Hutton uh, possibly coming back. So hopefully, there'll be like a rotation, and I can be in that rotation of guys that are calling games in the booth. But if not, I definitely am. Uh, you know, open to looking into the radio thing. That would be pretty cool. I think it would be good to be able to reach an audience and have an audience that I'm with every day or however many days to kind of talk to them and talk about the baseball and share the game with them and, you know, have some fun. Awesome. Preston, thanks so much for your time this morning. Listen, I love Mike Piazza. I'm not going to lie. One of my favorite Mets of all time. I just wish they had found some way to keep you out of the deal as I would have loved to seen you play a lot more for the Mets. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you on social media these days? Oh man, I'm around at uh at on Twitter. It's uh at forty four club thirty thirty. No, that's at Preston Wilson forty four. Sorry, at Preston Wilson forty four on Twitter, and I think on uh Instagram is pjrw four. Yeah, awesome, Preston. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day, and uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon. All right, thank you. All you right. Got it, Preston Wilson, two thousand six world champ.